Well, take your Bibles, let's turn together to Psalm 105. And the Psalm 105, just to, uh, again, to read the scripture as we enter into uh, this series of studies again. And the Psalm 105. I'm just going to read the opening section of this portion of scripture, the Psalm 105. And the verse number one, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham his servant, ye children of Jacob his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Amen. Again, may God be pleased uh, to bless his word to your souls today. Again, let me remind you very briefly, we are considering something of the existence and the attributes of of God, and again in recent uh, weeks, looking particularly at some of the grounds for the existence of God. Now, I have tried to make it clear uh, that God seeks nowhere in the Scriptures to prove His existence. It is simply accepted. God is God. That knowledge of God is innate in all mankind, and yet they hold and suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Now, that statement does not remove the benefit of seeking to give a demonstration of the evidences for God's existence. It has a role in what we might term apologetics. Apologetics comes from the, the Greek word apologia, which has this idea of a reason for the faith, an argued defense for what we believe. And again, there's a place for Christian apologetics to defend why we believe what we believe. It's got a role in persuading unbelievers. But again, even more fundamentally to that, the evidences for the existence of God has tremendous help for the child of God in strengthening our conviction as to God is and he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so we've sort of tried to see these evidences not so much as, uh, again, trying to prove a legal case, but rather as how God has revealed himself. The revelations of God whereby he makes himself known in this world and makes himself known uh, to mankind in particular. And so these revelations are what we're looking at. And again, that helps our faith. Hebrews chapter 11, if we're going to come to God, we must believe that he is. It's fundamental. If we don't believe that he is, then we don't have true saving faith. But you also see in this Psalm 105, you'll see that there is the benefits of knowing God in terms of us then uh, responding in doxology, in praise and in prayer. Glory ye in his holy name. And then verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. And then please note, Remember his marvelous works that he had done. And last time we were together, I 
again began to deal with the issue of how God makes himself known. Remember, under the heading, you've got creation, you've got conscience, and then you have the heading of, of Christ. And again, under Christ, we're looking at really the, the, the encompassing works of God in redemption, in, in making himself known in redemption. And so we began that uh, last time. These are the marvelous works of God, particularly when we think about the issue of miracle. God stepping into this world, intervening in a, in a marvelous fashion. Hence the term here, his marvelous works. So last time we thought, first of all, about the pattern of this, uh, the pattern of redemption, particularly in the issue of the Red Sea. I didn't just pick that out of nowhere. Uh, the matter of the Red Sea uh, recurs throughout the Old Testament uh, really to underscore the people's faith and their confidence in the power of God and in his covenantal purposes for their good. And so you see in the Psalms and in the prophets, uh, regular times, they come back, well, how do we know God is for us? How do we know God is able? Well, remember what he did at the Red Sea. And we saw that last time, I'm not going back over that, uh, that material again. I do want to pause uh, just for a few moments uh, once again on the subject of the prophecies. We just began to look at that briefly, uh, particularly with regards to, uh, to Matthew's gospel. Let me read this little section. I, I came across this this week in a book of systematic theology. Uh, the, the, the pastor Nichols says this, God specifically reveals his existence by predicting and fulfilling his secret purposes. I thought it was interesting. We had gone this way in our studies, and he puts it this way. God specifically reveals his existence by predicting and fulfilling his secret purposes. He continues, prophecy rests on the fact that God knows the future. God knows the future because God planned and decided the future. God alone knows the future because he alone determined it. And I, I read that and thought that sounds very familiar. And I was reading this uh, actually for book club tomorrow night, uh, not for, for this uh, class today. But I thought, well, this is very, very helpful, well worth uh, again considering again uh, in a brief moment or two. And so you think of some of the times when God has, has revealed himself in prophecy. To turn back to Genesis chapter 15. I'm just going to note a couple of these. Uh, Genesis 15. Again, some may say, well, prophecy, does that really prove the existence of God? Well, I think it absolutely does. Because this is a function that only God can do. God can reveal the future, predict that future, and ensure that it comes to pass. So Genesis 15, now let's read uh, verses 12 uh, through 16. Genesis 15, and the verse number 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know the surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in an old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full." And these are the initial words. So, well, you've Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and now he comes in covenantal purposes in Genesis 15, and he gives this word of prediction in a dream. Well, what's it about? What's this all about? You folks should know this. What's this all about, John? 
captive in Egypt, 50 or 400 years, uh, and then they returned again. The iniquity of the Amorites, referring to them entering the promised land, defeating the Amorites in that, in that role. And God has predicted that a long time before it happens. God is able to do so. You consider also then, you could, you could go across to, to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. going to skip over you've got the issue of course that um well we'll go back we'll go backwards we've got out of order we'll go back it's worth seeing again look at isaiah 44 first though isaiah 44 verse 28 that saith of cyrus he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure even saying to jerusalem thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid okay this is remarkable it's likely the case that Isaiah is writing maybe a hundred years before the people are taken captive. And he's already stating, or God is saying through Isaiah, the name of the ruler who'll be used of God for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Again, 150 years, maybe more, before that actually happens in the decree. Only God is able to do this. Now, I mentioned again uh, one other one. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 13. It's very similar. Um, but it's, it's worth noticing. First uh, Kings 13. Keep your finger on Isaiah, by the way, because we're going to go back there in a moment or two. But First Kings 13. And the verse number one, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And again, this is the sin of Jeroboam and his wickedness in Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense, and he, that is the man of God, cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall they offer the priest of the high place that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Second Kings 3, 23, this comes to pass, and Josiah is named. You know, it's one thing to say this altar is going to decay and be, be ruined. That's one thing. But to name the man by whom that will take place, only God. You wonder, is there a God? Well, there's a God who's able to do this hundreds of years before it comes uh, to pass. Now, that actually is something that God uses in and through Isaiah in his ministry. Turn across to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. And here again, the Lord dealing with the unbelief of the people and the false prophets. Verse 4, because I knew that thou art obstinate. Again, the Lord dealing with a stubborn people. And I knew thy neck is as an iron sinew and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. What's he talking about here? The things that are going to come to pass, he is showing them before it comes to pass. Look what he says. Lest thou should say, mine idol have done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Thou hast heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. And he's basically making the point, this is what I'm using to prove to you that I am God and the idols are not. 
Idols cannot do this. False gods cannot do this. Only the one true and living God has the ability to predict the future, to declare that prediction, and then to bring it to pass. Okay, you see how strong this is. I encourage you, use these things. And when you're engaging with people in their unbelief, you make the point of these and use these things, again, to, to demonstrate that there is indeed a God in heaven. Yeah, George. Yeah, again, for those watching on, George making the point of, of, the, of the vagueness of kind of those who predict the future, like Nostradamus, there's a vagueness. And so if you're, if you're looking for fulfillment, you can see it. It's like those who, who get their, their palms read or they, you know, they read their tea leaves or they go to the horoscopes, all of that. And they, they go, well, no, this is what they told me, that a dark man you know, with dark hair was going, to, was going to pass by my life. Uh, it came to pass, you know, a, a, a person driving a, a blue sedan with dark hair drove past me and made me change my direction. Look, my life's changed. You know what I'm saying? There's vagueness. Uh, there's just not that specificity in terms of the prophetic word. And of course, that was the proof, you think, of Deuteronomy 18. How do you know a true prophet from a false prophet? A false prophet, does it come to pass? Yeah, no, amen. And so the last time again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking backwards here, this is out of order. I appreciate that. Last time we went into Matthew and went through all the things that were fulfilled. Remember last week we saw the, the matters that were fulfilled. Some of those things, I, I do believe the Lord knew the scriptures and acted in such a way that they would be fulfilled. So when they, they bring those things to you, you go, yeah. And you marvel at the wisdom of the Lord Jesus who, who knew the scriptures and guaranteed that those things were fulfilled in himself. But there were some things, humanly speaking, please understand what I'm going to say, that were out of his control. Humanly speaking, I, I know he's God and he, all things are in his control. Uh, but fulfillment regarding his birth. He's a babe in the womb. He's a babe in the manger. And there were things that were filled in his birth that, again, are, are outside uh, his, his control. The actions of the, of the soldiers. They, they take his garment. They use lots to divide the garments. Those are actions of, of people who again are, are acting in, in their own freedom, in their own decisions, but they're fulfilling the scriptures in, in all that they do. You know, the, the, the tomb of the rich, again, given to him, again, by a man who came to love the Lord, but again was acting without the Lord's compulsion. You know, so these things are coming to pass. Yeah. George. If, if I could, I was thinking before the story, that as we 
Yeah, and undoubtedly the, the, the benefit of fulfilled prophecies go in, in several directions. You know, they, we're only looking at one narrow aspect here. They, they prove God's existence. But, of course, they, they prove God's reliability. They prove his covenantal faithfulness in, in terms of redemption. They give us hope for the future. There, there's multiple things that fulfilled prophecies uh, will do in, in our lives. We're just looking at one narrow aspect. But all of these things are, are beneficial to no, 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 the comments, listen, the comments are very helpful. I'm just, uh, I'm just, the, the people watching on can't hear your comments. I'm just pe- repeating what you're saying, George. It's all good. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, no, absolutely. All of this. And so let, let's go to who he is. Let's think of the third thing, person. Okay, John 1, 18. Again, here we are narrowing our focus, okay? There is so much we could say regarding how Jesus Christ reveals the Father. We're going to see, really, when we come to look at the attributes of God, we'll at times, we'll, we'll see how those attributes were revealed in Christ Jesus. And so you've got John 1, and again, verse 18. John 1, 18, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Okay, so there is, again, in the coming of Christ Jesus, this act of God to reveal himself that he is and that he is the reward of those that diligently seek him. Remember, that's our purpose, Hebrews 11. What does faith require? He is and he is the rewarder in terms of he's the savior, he's the, the covenant-keeping God, and, and Christ reveals that. What was true of God is now revealed in incarnate form. But my desire, again, in this class is to, is to emphasize how the miracles in the Lord's life display God in public form. So the public evidence of miraculous. So turn back to Luke chapter 2. I hope what, your, what my intention is, is to show you that these things were not done in a corner. But that God shows miracles in Christ that are in such a nature that there were public testimony to those miracles. Remember we said uh, last time that in the, in the modern charismatic confusion, there are many claimed miracles, but really no evidence of those miracles being performed. Now here, when it comes to the Lord doing his miracles, there are very clear evidences given. And so you're going to look at this in four, in four separate areas. First, regarding his birth. Okay, regarding his birth. So look to um, the verse number 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Simply making the point that when the Lord was born, the miraculous nature of his birth was revealed to Mary and Joseph. But then when it comes to the birth itself, the angelic host appeared to the shepherds. They tell them about what's happening. A babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. They bring glory to God. The shepherds then go to Bethlehem. They see the child that was born. And what is the result? They glorify and praise God. What is revealed to them provokes in them faith and confidence in God. The revelation of the miracle in a public fashion provokes faith in their souls. Now you see also the same over in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, this is again the account of, of course the wise men coming 
And again, the Lord now is a, is a younger child, not no longer a babe in the manger. But the wise men come, Matthew chapter 2, and they come to <clears throat> Herod, and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. There's a lot of mystery in the background regarding this situation. But I've preached before and I believe that these men had likely received the prophecies of Daniel regarding the coming Messiah. Uh, Daniel, of course, in captivity in the east in Babylon. His words are being shared, and they've come to hear that's been passed down through the generations, and they're expecting one. Now, they don't say, where's a special child that was born? They're expecting one, a king, to be born. The king is born. So what you're seeing, the Lord is making the Lord's birth public. Through the shepherds, and now through the wise men, there's this public demonstration of the specialness of this child born in the fulfillment of prophecy. So that's regarding his, his birth. What about his life then? Well, there are several things regarding his, his life and the miracles that reveal the glory of God. Look at Mark, first of all, Mark chapter 4. I'm just going to show you four areas. Again, each of these areas are publicly demonstrated and they are seen to have a purpose so these, these we're going to look at so in his life there are miracles they show the glory of God and they, they do so in a public fashion okay that's that's the argument here these are public miracles and you see four areas you have power first of all over nature Part over nature, chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, verse number 41. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Of course, the story of the, uh, the stilling of the storm. Uh, the Lord's been asleep in the boat, uh, verse number 38. Uh, but then he comes and he speaks to the storm. And what do they do? They see this, they respond. What manner of man is this? It's a revelation publicly of the glory of God in the miraculous. Then I turn across to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11 and the verse number 20. And here we see God's or Christ's power over demons. Luke 11 verse 20. But if I, and here's a phrase, with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so my argument here is that in the miraculous, the Lord is seeking to prove the existence and the power of God. That's part of the purposes of these miracles. They're, they're not just there out of compassion uh, for those who are uh, possessed of demons. Yes, the Lord shows compassion to those, but there are multitudes again on that time and they are possessed of devils and the Lord does not deliver them. His miracles are purposeful, and they're intentional. And here the purpose is that they would see that the finger of God being operative in the miracle, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. You see the same over in John chapter 9. You've got Christ's power over, over natural forces, the wind and the waves. You've got the power over the demons. And here you've got, of course, the power 
over disease. But again, note the language used here. I picked particularly uh, miraculous ones that have this sort of language involved. John 9, verse 30. Who hath sinned, or sorry, 9, verse 3. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. A public display of the workings of God in his marvelous works. Remember Psalm 105, the marvelous works of God. We're to remember those marks of God and we're to praise God for them. Well, here in the New Testament, a work of God being made manifest. Then over in verse, or then sorry, John verse, John 11 and the verse number four. One other area, and this of course is regarding the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And you have here John 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. We've got to remember how we define this term of God being glorified. It is that his glory is made manifest, is displayed, the Son of God is already the all-glorious second person of the Godhead. No addition to his glory. And so when it says he's glorified, it is the public revelation of that glory. We glorify God by making him, making him known in our praises and in our lives. And so over in John 11, verse 40, again, the Lord makes the, the point to Martha. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst, note the word, See the glory of God. The point or argument is that the miraculous in the life of Christ is deliberately intended to make his glory known, to show and reveal himself so that people see and they believe that God is and that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so it is for us. We read the Bible and we have these same convictions. So you have things regarding his birth, his life, and of course also with respect to his death, the Lord's death. Look across to Matthew chapter 27. Again, we're going quickly here. I appreciate that, but I want to get all this out in one, in one shot. Matthew chapter 27. And the verse number 50. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. In connection with the Lord's death, and we often neglect this portion of Matthew's gospel. It's difficult. Strange things took place. Why did not more believe? Because of the hardness of their hearts. But the evidence was there. And those whom God had appointed to believe, they realize the evidence, they understand the claims of Christ, but they see these miraculous works and they bring together the miraculous works and the words of Christ. They draw them together and the centurion, speaking for others, says, truly this was the Son of God. A statement, I believe, of saving faith. 
believing the words of Christ, but the miraculous was used. Opening of the graves, the rending of the veil, the earthquake, the rocks renting in two. All of these things were used of God to make himself known. You remember what we're doing here? We're trying to think, well, is there within the workings of God these evidences that we would know God is? Well, yes, these are public events. No one else could argue, was there an earthquake on that day? Yes, there was. It may have been local, it may have been around Jerusalem, but there was a manifestation of the power of God in connection with the death of Christ Jesus. And it is for the purpose that we believe the miraculous to reveal the existence of God. One last area of this, and it pertains, of course, to the Lord's uh, resurrection. Go to Ma- uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. This, to my mind, is the definitive proof of the existence of God and his purpose of doing good for mankind. You've got the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Every sermon and every presentation of the gospel in the book of Acts includes references to the resurrection of Christ. I think it's probably wise to say that there is no true gospel preaching without the resurrection being emphasized. Now, we preach Christ crucified, but in the preaching of Christ crucified, we do not preach a Christ who is still upon the cross, but one who died and was buried and rose again. The resurrection must be included in the faith of preaching of Christ crucified. Do that, please, in your own personal witness. Continually bring people back to the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That's where you must always go. The evidence is there for his resurrection. And Paul does that. You think of this sermon in Mars Hill, verse number 22. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar unto this inscription, with inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. You see the issue here? Is there a God? Well, we know there's a God. But who is this God? Who is this God that you do not know? And again, the idea is there's, there's inscriptions to many gods. But just in case they miss one, they include the unknown God. And Paul snatches upon this. Their innate knowledge of God, but yet their ignorance of that God. And he makes the point, God that made the world. There is one creator, not multiple, but only one. And who is this God? Well, on down in verse number 31. This is God calling them to repentance because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Who is that man? If you know who that man is, you will then know who this God is. The God that made the world, who calls men to repentance, who's going to come and judge the world. Who's the man? Who's the man? Well, we're told who the man is. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The man is the God-man, the risen Christ, the man Christ Jesus who was raised from the dead the third day, that resurrecting miracle, a proof of the existence of God, a proof to the ignorant that there is this one and true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who brought him from the dead. The miraculous 
used of the apostle as part of his proofing of the nature of our God. And so you see this, don't you? You have these areas. Again, we've thought of creation and conscience, but preeminently the evidence for God comes in the person of Christ Jesus. Predicted, yes, prophesied, but in his actual coming we see this miraculous as the Son of God declares the Father unto us in these gospel narratives. So that's something regarding the existence of God. May today you believe that he is. May your faith be strengthened. Again, we could spend many, many weeks on this, uh, looking in more detail at all of these, uh, these various things, but I think the overview is helpful. God is. Do you believe that he is? Are you here to worship him today? Are you here to, to give your life to him today afresh? Do you believe he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him? Then seek him today, worship him today, call upon him in faith today. A failure to do so will come next time to think about the outcome of atheism. A failure to worship and glorify God will damn your soul, will take you to a lost eternity. God is, and he's a God of wonderful grace. Amen. May God help us. Any final comments or questions on this? And Yeah, George, go ahead. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that true believers can struggle with doubts. A true believer can, can wrestle, you know, with, if you like, wrestle with the devil. They, they see unbelief all around them in the world, and they, they, they see the prosperity of the wicked like Asaph did of old, and they can wonder themselves, is, is this all really true? Well, you have a couple of choices in that. You can just ignore your doubts and press on in the hope that things get better. Or you can use your brains and get on your knees with the Bible and get before God and say, Lord, I want to remind myself in your word that you are and that you're the rewarder of those that diligently seek thee. And so that's part of my purpose. You've, you have scriptures now. You've, you have things in your, in your understanding that you can use to take to God. I know that thou art. And then you have the hope to press on in the things of God, though life at times can be discouraging and difficult God is and what a glorious and a great God he is. So, yeah, amen. Amen. It should stir us up. And even if I, can, if I can link this to what we'll see this morning. If this is so, you can never halt between two opinions. If there's only one true and living God, then you cannot have God as your chief, your chief object of worship and devotion and have other things that occupy your affections and your attention. You've got to have God first, Christ first. And we'll come to that in a few moments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do bless our time around the Word today as we come to consider in your Word again the, the events on Mount Carmel and you, you made yourself known on that occasion. And dear Father, we'll, we'll see so many overlaps between this morning's uh, study that you show yourself in your power but also in your redemptive purposes. 
Oh God, may we as your people be stirred up, as George has said, be, be stirred up in our faith, strengthened in our faith, whereby we'd worship thee today with all of our souls. And um, we'd also be strong. And we'd fight every onslaught of the devil. And we'd keep doubts away. Bless us, O oh God, to help us to worship thee and encourage our souls in Jesus' precious name. Amen.